Welcome everybody to another edition of that co-production podcast. We're delighted to to be with you uh, today and these podcasts are delivered in partnership between the Research Design Service Southeast and the National Institute for Health Research Centre for Engagement and Dissemination. And as I said, this episode today is going to be all about valuing relationships. And uh, myself and Julie are going to be talking to Rebecca and John. And so before we begin, uh, I'd like to ask everybody if they can introduce themselves. Firstly, my name's Katie and I work as a lay reviewer for the Research Design Service. And I'm also a researcher working from lived experience. Uh, Rebecca, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and firstly, thank you very much for inviting John and myself today. We're, we're really delighted to be a part of this. Um, so my name is Rebecca Baines and I'm a researcher at the University of Plymouth. Um, my background is in patient experience, co-production and more recently now moving into digital health technology. Lovely. Thank you, Rebecca. And John, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Yes, my name is John. Uh, I am a patient suffering from psychosis and I have psychotic behaviour. I suffer from schizophrenia and I also have with me my best friend, Amber, who's been with me since I was 19, been in my spirit and soul all the time. And so she's delighted to join in this conversation too. Wonderful. Welcome to you all three, Rebecca, John and Amber. And uh, last but not least, Julie. Oh, it's really lovely to be here with you today, Rebecca and, and John and Katie, of course, obviously. But yeah, having read about yeah, the work that you've done, uh, it, it was really moving, actually. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here. My interest in co-production is twofold, I suppose. I set up a charity over 10 years ago doing nature connection courses for people with mental health issues to improve their well-being and we really tried to do that in a very co-produced way and still do um, and I myself am a, a lay reviewer for the RDS Southeast like Katie um, coming from lived experience of mental health issues and long-term physical health issues. Thank you very much Julie. Well, we always begin these uh, these podcasts with what we call an icebreaker. So my icebreaker or our icebreaker today is if you could choose to be one age forever, what age would it be and why? So, Rebecca, I'm going to put you in the hot seat. First. <laughs> oh, well, I think that's a tricky one. But I think and this might sound quite cheesy, but I think it would be the age that I am now because that's kind of led me to the person that I am now um and I've learned obviously many many mistakes along the way that if I hadn't have made those mistakes then I wouldn't be the person that I am maybe now without the COVID pandemic would be quite a nice age but yeah I think actually I'm I'm quite content with where I am at, at the minute so probably the age of, of 28 I guess thank you Rebecca <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like something new that John's, John's learned about. Yeah. 
<laughs> John, did you want to, to say anything, answer that icebreaker? Well, I'm not 28. I sometimes look back to my life in the past and to when I was 18 and 19 when I first met Amber. And Amber literally came into my life when I, I went for coffee. Uh, I was in this place in Oxford and she just appeared and said, well, I'm going to make room for another girl. And I was just completely blown away because I couldn't see anybody there. And yet this voice was crystal clear and it was Amber. And so for me, I suppose that's one of the most remarkable events of my life. But in following on from what Rebecca said, I would also say the present time is a good time, but the future is always a better time. And so I would like to actually try and chunk you, Rebecca, with my <laughs> card of the future, my ace of the clubs, the future that I look forward. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you, John. Right. Well, thank you for that icebreaker. It's always good to have those at the beginning. And um, Judy, shall I hand over to you for, for the next question? Thank you. We're going to talk today about your experiences of working together, um, particularly on the development of guidance on how to respond to patient feedback in an online environment. It would be lovely if you could just give us an overview of that project. John, do you want to start? Oh, Lord. Well, it was very difficult for me at the beginning to actually find myself in a position where uh, I was looked to initially not as a patient, but I was looked to as a partner. And mm. the first time I felt empowered. Mm. And that's a terribly difficult thing to grab hold of. But most people uh, who I had treatment with, and there were psychiatrists and psychologists, were treating me as a patient and not as a partner, and weren't treat, treating me as an equal. And in not doing so, they weren't listening to me at all about, say, for instance, Amber, and I was desperately trying to actually kind of voice my own opinions, but it just wasn't being heard. Yet when I found Rebecca, uh, uh, goodness knows, it was in 2016, I found someone who was quite capable of taking on board very easily the idea that someone could be a joint partner with them mm -hmm. in a project for the future mm -hmm. and who was willing to actually listen to a patient's voice rather than actually mm -hmm. telling the patient what they should do, mm -hmm. when they should do it, etc, etc. And instead what I had was a person open wide to the other uh, input that I could bring to the table. It's quite a difficult thing to explain and what I'm trying to say is that what patients bring to the table is that our voice is different from that of, of the experts. And I would count Rebecca as being a great expert, but my voice is different from hers. That of, say, psychiatrists and psychologists, there's an arrogance which I find unbelievable in their profession, which I can't see being counted unless we have further and further uh, responses from patients so the patient's voice is heard every single day as being a truthful voice and a voice which has meaning I find that the younger generation I mean by that people in their 20s and their 30s will sit there and nod their heads and say yes of course your voice is 
worthwhile and we should respect it. But if I actually am being truthful, speak about my own generation, they're just not open to it. I have a brother who's a doctor, and when I told him that I was doing work as a research partner with someone on a PhD, he turned around and said, well, what have you got to bring to the table? And I'm afraid on that, I rest my case. (laughs) Very true. Yeah, so John and I met, like you said, 2016, which feels like a long time ago, but equally only yesterday, which I think is is a lovely situation to be in. So John and I have worked together now for nearly five years. And the, the research around responding to online feedback was part of a PhD that essentially co-produced that PhD, which is a fantastic experience. And actually the idea about creating guidance for online feedback stemmed from John. So we met every two weeks same time, same place. And we met in a in beautiful library every Wednesday morning, 10 a.m. Um, and during that process, we were looking at patient experiences, psychiatric care online on the brilliant patient feedback platform that is Care Opinion. And through that process, what we started to see was that there were some quite critical or negative experiences of psychiatric care but also a lot of positive experiences as well that's important to notice. But what we were seeing is if people have particularly bad experiences in psychiatric care, they were receiving a very standard response that didn't really listen or acknowledge people's experiences. It was just very much, thank you for your feedback. Please contact our complaints department or PALS, the patient advice and liaison service. And so John actually said, you know, this isn't this isn't good enough. It doesn't look like they care and it's another form of poor care in in a way the lack of response so what we did is we recognized then John recognized this was a problem we went and spoke to another charity fantastic charity called Heads Count which is here based in Plymouth and we started to co-design then the um, response framework based on what patients would like to see in a response and what would be a meaningful response in their perception. So that's sort of how the research from John's identifying the issue, we then put things in place to help produce a, a solution to, to that issue. And it's now being used nationally, which is, which is fantastic. Gosh, that sounds like it had a real impact um, on a lot of people's lives. I'm, I'm curious about how you actually met. You know, it's fascinating to hear that John was the one that flagged up this issue. It's not on my list of questions, but it would be really great to know how that came about. I can answer that. Uh, I was in hospital. I had a, an experience in London, which was a very bad experience. And I came down to recuperate in Plymouth with my mother. And whilst I was there, I had a a complete breakdown. I was in ICU for 11 days. I flatlined five times on on different occasions throughout that 11-day period. And thereafter, I was in hospital for six weeks. And then when I came out, my life had been just basically been destroyed. And I ended up in a Salvation Army. And that's where I met Rebecca. I was introduced by someone who was a, a friend of Rebecca's, by a doctor, and I have to be sitting at a dining table. Uh, Rebecca sits there and at the age of 28, but you would have been 23 then, or 22. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't a pleasant place. 
Yes, there were knifings, there were all sorts of terrible things going on, a lot of drug taking and so on. So for Rebecca to be that brave to have come into that scene was quite, I thought, very brave. And she did that, and everyone used to turn around and say, who's that blonde you're with? Oh, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's going to be a doctor. And so that's how I met. <laughs> oh, John, thank you for sharing that story. That sounds like that was quite a dark time, so I really appreciate you being open about that. Over to you, Katie, for the next question. Okay. I've already got loads of extra questions yeah. coming out, so um, I'll, I'll stick with what we've got. But we may we may well digress because it, uh, it's it's already fascinating. So my next formal question, anyway, is: we always talk about the importance of sharing power in co-production. It, it comes up time and time again, as it should do, and it's easy to say that we should share power. But um, I think, as we've all experienced, uh, very hard to actually do in a genuine, sort of authentic, meaningful way in practice. So I was just going to ask both of you, what did you do in your work to sort of enable this sharing of power? Can I go to you first with this, Rebecca? And then John? Yeah, although I think John, when we were looking at the questions, I think John wanted to respond in a slightly different way. So I might actually pass it back to John if that's okay. If that's okay with everyone. Uh, basically, I think the question is being relevant. I, I don't want to be, uh, that's not controversial in any way, but if two people are going to actually join together in a project, you normally, I actually think of the Wright brothers doing their flight to actually kind of do the first flight in the first aeroplane. They must have had terrible arguments. And yet, at the same time, they must have had said, oh, snap, I know what you're thinking, snap, I know what you're thinking. And through that process, built this wonderful airplane which lifted humanity off the, off the earth. And I think that what Rebecca and I managed to do was very, very easy. I knew instinctively, and I think this is important for research for the future for people, is that they open their eyes to what is the possibility with say a patient myself and then to say okay I'll be their friend for this journey and more than that I'm not more important than that person then in other words there's a joint responsibility and you walk hand in hand together on that road and I know that Rebecca has done this trail which she did for charity and she went on a trail across the Great China Wall and she did the walk over there and apparently it's not flat (laughs) (laughs) very very difficult and I thought of that as being the great journey as well we should take hand in hand with someone so when somebody says what steps should you take? The first initial steps I would say one should take is to actually hold hands and to realize and get a spark of responsibility. And then to actually turn around and say, you've got an alliance with that person. And then you have to pro, you know, get together and get a roadmap together of where you're going. And in that roadmap, you basically extinguish all of the negativity and you just look literally like at the uh, great wall of china and go oh come on for goodness sake let's just do this one together 
and that's how we achieved it. So I think, yeah, when we were reflecting on on the kind of idea of power, John was actually saying, well, that was never an issue for us. Power never entered the kind of language or, or discourse that we used. It was never something that was at the forefront of our mind. But that isn't to say that together we didn't experience power differences sort of external to us. So I think for me, sort of personally reflecting back on the, the four or five years experience together, I don't know whether it was because I was a new researcher, um, so I didn't have as many assumptions perhaps around what research should look like, who a researcher was. I was of limited power, shall I say, in that sense, and I was a junior researcher myself. So I was at the bottom of the rung almost is how how I felt. Equally, I think power in the sense of where where we met John I was in your space as opposed to asking you to come to university space for example and so actually it felt like a very organic and natural meeting we didn't know we were going to meet we didn't know that we were going to work together and achieve everything that we have so I think power in that sense was very natural in that we agreed what we wanted to do we identified sort of common areas over time, we've developed a relationship that means John can challenge what I say, I can question what John says, but in a constructive way, there's no right or wrong answers. And like John was saying, no view is more important than the other. And I think that was just sort of something that we both understood from a very early stage of working. I think the power issue then comes around university structures and then other people's perceptions of co-production and kind of having to frequently defend how you're working together. And I think if you were to adopt sort of a, a different methodology or different approach, you might not have to defend that as regularly. The methodology that we've managed to develop, I wouldn't change that. Just sounds like a fantastic blueprint we could all do with starting from. And I, I know that in reality, it's very rarely that case. And, and so... Mm-hmm extremely fortunate but also that you've both created that you've both started off with those values mm. being at a, a seminar where there were other people doing co-production but i remember these people were saying oh we're doing the same thing we're doing co-production but they weren't doing co-production what they were doing was they had a charge where the patient was given questions and as soon as you give the patient all the co-production partner questions, you devalue what you should be doing. And Rebecca never said, here's what we're setting out to do, here's the questions, here's the answers. And nothing was like force-fed into my mind. And there was there was a lack of subjectivity. And there's this subjective sort of voice, which I always hear from academics, of we know best and we know what we're meant to be doing. And and yet Rebecca, okay, maybe naively with youth. I won't call it naive, naivety. <laughs> I would. <laughs> I would call it youthful exuberance. And sometimes with youthful exuberance, you actually kind of reach the stars and you find the stars because you're not hindered by academia. And I found some of the, the things in the seminar, I could hear them. I was getting so annoyed by like, oh, would, who, who on earth are you to actually tell us what we're thinking? And I never felt that for one second. And I think that that is an important concept to bring to bear if one's doing co-production is the academic 
to not be subjective. In other words, to try and take their academic hat off and accept that they are just another human being with that other human being trying to find a way forward. Yeah, that makes such perfect sense to me, John. I, I know when I talked about this in the past and, and people say, oh, you know, it's very difficult to power share within the structures we have. And I absolutely agree. And I sort of say, well, in order to share power, you've, you've got to give up the power mm-hmm. you have. You know, you've got to divest yourself of it in order to be able to create a more level playing field, if you like. And And I think it's that divesting giving up leaving behind as you say taking off that academic hat with all Mm -hmm. the power that's invested in that people still find really 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 challenging i'm i'm with a group at the moment and i'm lucky to have a young group of people uh, of psychologists clinical psychologists and uh and psychiatrists who look after me and they always talk about problems which exist uh, and manifest themselves when people are not allowed to voice their own opinion. What we try to do is, in our group, is we tend to actually sit there and there's always a little thing right at the beginning, a preamble. And preamble is to respect, to remember and to honour the people who are with you. And in doing that, and that includes the doctors and the psychologists and psychiatrists and so on and so forth, but also all of the people around who are with us who who have our commonality. And we don't know, I don't know, for instance, when I'm joining a group, what those circumstances are. Um, My circumstances are so that everyone knows, I'm quite clear about this, I used to be raped as a child. And not just once or twice, but on a routine basis, I was just a a victim. And all sorts of horror stories, they led me to a bad place in my life. And what I try to find from now in my groups is that other people must have gone through horror stories. I can see it in their eyes. And for those people, I'm sure that they have a story to tell. And that story, I'm lucky enough, all the people are young enough, the psychiatrists and psychologists, they're of your age group, Rebecca, (laughs) maybe up to around 40. But I I will repeat this again, that it's in the older generation, there's just absolutely, uh, as soon as I come across one of uh, my own generation, it shuts us down time. They don't want to know. And I think going back to the topic of power there, I think one thing John and I both agree on, and correct me if I'm wrong, John, is we are very good sometimes in assuming that things will be difficult because of the the resistance to let some of that power go. Whereas I think John and I have found that actually it can be very simple, provided both parties are willing to truly and authentically invest in the process as an equal but of course I think the other thing is to recognize from the outset of where you are and what you're bringing and how you may be in a different social situation educational situation but it's recognizing those different levels but respecting them equally and again like John was saying no one view is more important than the other and I think just reiterating that from the outset but also throughout your process checking where you are both in terms of power and power sharing and empowering one another because I think for from kind of a researcher I often felt a huge sense of guilt at times in that 
I knew I was in a different position to John, for example. So where we met in a homeless hostel, that was a very different living situation to the living situation I had. I couldn't fix that for John and it wasn't my position to fix. But actually what I've been privileged enough to be a part of is seeing John now living in an independent or supported living flat away from that situation. And so I think it's equally checking in on power, if you like, throughout your research process. But I think it's just to try and hammer home that point that power doesn't have to be difficult. Sharing power doesn't have to be really uncomfortable. It can be for some, but equally, I think like John was saying at the beginning, you are ultimately two people working to achieve a similar goal. And if you keep that at the forefront of your mind, you'll have far greater chances of success, I think. Whatever success might look like, that's a entirely different discussion I guess as well (laughs) it's a commitment to those values isn't it and those ethos and I think if you have that as a foundation then the things like you know that description of sharing power is actually a consequence absolutely yeah to those to those ways of working then then the issue isn't such an issue I guess and I totally agree with you it's it's about being constant constantly reflective about all these processes, not not just sort of sharing power, but a sense of continuous reflection. Now, I think, Julie, I'm going to hand over to you <laughs> for the next question and any, any thoughts you had about that brilliant discussion we've just had. Oh, I feel like I've learned a lot, actually, which is always a real privilege to do these podcasts and can easily sort of think, oh, I've had a lot of experience of co-production and yeah and then and then people come along and kind of make me realize that there's just always more to learn and it's been a fascinating conversation um I'm gonna leave my next question until part two because we're running out of time so look forward to hearing more from you then 